Thank you, Skylar, for reading today's passage. Every biological family is somewhat dysfunctional. Some common signs of dysfunction are ongoing conflict, addiction, perfectionism, abuse, neglect, unpredictability, fear, conditional love, lack of boundaries, lack of intimacy, and poor communication. It becomes problematic when a family is so marked by these things that family members begin to believe that their situation is actually normal. Often they pretend the pain of dysfunction is just not there. I'll begin with a personal example. I grew up in a very good family with very good parents, but we were not perfect. I have three brothers. There's the first sign of imperfection. I'm number three of four. Being four energetic boys, we entered into conflict when we played sports, when we had different ideas about things, or when we were supposed to be working and one of us was not pulling his weight. It was not unusual for us to get physical. Conflict was resolved, so to speak, through the exercise of physical strength. We were not good at conversation. Being one of the smaller ones, I usually took a pounding. This sibling dynamic did teach me some life skills, however, such as knowing how to avoid a punch, when to stay quiet, and when to run for the hills when I had offended one of my brothers. It also taught me something about positional power. The older ones have more power. And physical power, the bigger ones, rule the roost. Here's the important point. If I carry those behavioral patterns into marriage and parenting, I will face family dysfunction by uh, avoiding conversations, protecting myself against anything that might threaten me, and running away when things get too difficult. Or on the flip side, if I follow the example of my older brothers, when I am the one with positional and physical power, I will tend to be abusive and controlling. Later in life, when I was in university, I acquired some language to help me think about working through conflict situations. I learned there were at least four different ways of working through conflict. One, competition. You assert yourself, fight for your rights, and dominate the other. Two, accommodation. You yield and give in. Three, avoidance. You just deny the problem exists. So when I was small, my brothers and I practiced competition, accommodation, and avoidance. We needed to learn the fourth way. The fourth way is cooperation. You listen to the other person, share concerns, and work toward a win-win scenario. You try to make the conflict productive. We, brothers, we needed to learn to listen, converse, and cooperate. My parents, they tried to teach us, but we were slow learners. Here's another important point. We often carry the relational skills learned at home, good and bad, into our spiritual family. If I carry some of the skills learned at home as a young boy into the spiritual family, when I feel disempowered, I will avoid the, the important conversations, protect myself at all costs, and run away as soon as the spiritual family faces difficulties. On the flip side, when I feel empowered, I'll exercise positional and physical power and potentially be abusive. We carry our relational patterns, including our family dysfunction, into our spiritual family. As a result, every spiritual family is a bit dysfunctional. Let's look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. A problem arises. Note that this problem arises when the disciples were increasing in number. What has marked the early church up to this point? The first disciples of Jesus have been marked by the manifest presence of God, profound oneness, praise and worship, teaching of the word, seasons of prayer, eating together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, generous sharing, powerful witness in word and deed, and exponential growth. They have experienced all the marks of a healthy church. But even in this healthy environment, a problem arises. Something is not right. While the church has been growing, the Hellenists come to the conclusion that their widows are being discriminated against, and they begin to grumble. They murmur against the Hebrew community. What's the problem? In the Jewish world, there were tensions between the Hebrews, the Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jews, on the one hand, and the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, on the other hand who often came from other regions of the Roman Empire. In fact, there is evidence of long-standing friction and animosity between these two groups. There were linguistic, social, and cultural differences between them. They went to different synagogues. In Acts 6, the Hebrews and the Hellenists have come to faith in Jesus. They now attend the same church, but they carry their relational dysfunction into the church family. Generous sharing is occurring in the church family, but the Hellenist widows believe they are being discriminated against. They're being neglected. When we live church family, we can expect wonderful moments of awe and joy, of deep friendship and sharing. We can also expect some dysfunction. The dysfunction may be revealed by some internal stress, Internal stress can be caused by good things like spiritual renewal and numerical growth. It can also be caused by more negative things like leadership rivalries, socioeconomic divisions, immorality, and hypocrisy. The dysfunction may also be revealed by external stress due to cultural or political shifts in society. Some churches in Canada have experienced division over the vaccine question. The issue is external to the church, but it has revealed internal tension. And many churches have not been able to keep the main thing the main thing. They've been distracted from their primary mission, that is, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus through conversation and compassionate action. How does the church family respond to their dysfunction in Acts chapter 6? Notice, first of all, that the apostles hear the Greek-speaking Jews. In dealing with dysfunction, we must, first of all, listen well. Be willing to face the pain. Sometimes it is painful to hear that we're not living up to our calling. It is painful to hear that people are feeling neglected. At Willingdon, sometimes a language group will feel excluded. Sometimes a generation will feel ignored. An interest group will feel forgotten. The apostles face the pain head on, and so must we. If we don't face the pain, we will be like people living with leprosy. What do I mean to say? 
Dr. Paul Brand was a distinguished British surgeon who spent most of his adult life in South Asia among lepers. He worked with people who lost their extremities through injury because they felt no pain. Dr. Brand knew leprosy was contagious, but he assured his medical colleagues that they were not in danger. Sam Chand writes in his book, Leadership Pain. Then one night, after a flight from America to London, Dr. Brand went to his hotel and began to undress for bed. When he took off one of his shoes, he realized he had no sensation in his foot. The numbness terrified him. He found a pin and stuck it into the skin below his ankle. Nothing. He pushed it deeper into his flesh. This time some blood appeared, but still he felt no pain. All night, Dr. Brand lay in bed with his mind racing to imagine his new life as a leper. How would it affect his personal life? Would he have to leave his family? What assurance could he now give to to his staff that they, too, wouldn't contract the disease? The next morning, as the day dawned, Dr. Brand picked up a pin and stuck it into his ankle. This time he yelled, it hurt! From that day forward, whenever he felt discomfort from a cut, nausea, or anything else, he responded with genuine gratitude, thank God for pain. Sometimes we come to believe the lie that we should not feel pain in our biological family, nor in our spiritual family. Sometimes our spiritual enemy, the devil, uses this lie to isolate us from our spiritual family. So often when we experience pain, we just want to be relieved of the pain. We think feeling pain is just wrong. If we see pain as only an unwelcome intruder, we'll fail to ask the right questions, and our heartache will be wasted. The truth is that we will all feel pain, and God wants us to come through the experience not just being relieved of pain, but different, changed. The pain of dysfunction is meant to wake us up. Pain is one of the ways, perhaps the main way, God works his grace deeply into our lives. Craig Groeschel, pastor at Life Church, writes this Pain is a part of progress. Anything that grows experiences some pain. If I avoid all pain, I'm avoiding growth. Often the difference between where I am and where God wants me to be is the pain I'm willing to endure. So pain is not the enemy. The inability or unwillingness to face pain is the far greater danger. A fun experience when I was young was taking family photos after a moment of sibling tension. I can hear my mother. Let's make sure these boys have no facial wounds. (laughs) Is their clothing coordinated? Is their hair combed? Is everyone looking at the camera? Everyone smiling? Nothing in their teeth? Okay, there, beautiful picture. There's nothing wrong with taking a nice family photo. But if we're always acting and unwilling to face the pain of dysfunction, We'll never grow up. Sometimes we scream, God, why have you given me this imperfect spiritual family? The answer is that God wants us to learn, change, and grow. We can expect to experience some dysfunction at home and at church so we can grow and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The important question today is this. If the pain of dysfunction is inevitable in the spiritual family, how does God want us to face it? In Acts chapter 6, 
The church family acknowledges the existence of a problem which will potentially divide the church and stunt the growth of the movement. They do not dismiss the Hellenist challenge. The leaders assume responsibility for the problem. God, he sees the Hellenist widows and loves them. Therefore, the church must see them, hear them, and love them. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles will devote themselves to prayer. They know they have to spend time in God's presence, worshiping, interceding for the church family, and praying over the mission of the church. They need wisdom from God to lead. The apostles will devote themselves to the, to the ministry of the word. They will not abandon the preaching of the word of God in order to serve tables. It is not that serving the widows is inferior to preaching. It's simply a matter of calling within the life of the church family. Through their devotion to teaching God's word, a biblical foundation will be provided for the church family. They will communicate God's will and direction for the Jerusalem church and and lay the foundation for a movement soon to spread across the globe. In Acts, the church family faces many challenges. For example, in Acts 15, again, there's a conflict because the church has grown exponentially among the non-Jews. What do they do? They listen to each other. They hear life testimonies, and they go to the scriptures. No matter what what the life challenge, the apostles expect to receive guidance from God and, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to be able to discern God's direction for the church family. When a spiritual family faces dysfunction, it must ask God to bring clarity, point two, to bring clarity so the church family understands God's direction. The apostles know their roles and priorities. Having said this, the Hellenist widows still have real needs. So they ask the church family, the full number of the disciples, the scripture says, to participate in the process. They are to select seven men to shepherd the situation. And then the church family is not just to select whoever's available. No. Meeting the needs of the widows requires men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Why? Well, the widows will have to be able to trust these men. They cannot be served by men who will take advantage of the situation. They must be men who will express the heart of Jesus toward the Hellenist widows. How does the church family respond? Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the church family selects seven men with Greek names. It appears that six are Greek-speaking Jews, and one, Nicholas, is a proselyte. They're close to the situation. They can identify with the Hellenists, speak the language of the Greek-speaking widows, and shepherd the situation well. The decision reflects the wisdom of the body. When facing dysfunction, we must 
work together for the good of the entire spiritual family. In the case of the Hellenist widows, the dysfunctional relationships between Hellenists and Hebrews persist due to apparent neglect and inadequate leadership structure and poor communication. The problem is is addressed with attention given, a revised leadership structure, and good communication. The new leadership group is empowered by the apostles to serve. And then one more thing to remember here. The seven men, they submit to the direction given by the leadership. The seven men who are chosen will need to walk in humility. Why do I mention this? Because they're gifted to do more than distribute food. Stephen and Philip are gifted and full of the Holy Spirit, but if they can't submit and follow, they will not be able to lead. Stephen is an apologist and preacher. Later, signs and wonders happen through his ministry. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen will be given the opportunity to preach an amazing sermon, to stand in the face of opposition, and to become the church family's first martyr. In Acts chapter 6, God is preparing Stephen for the next season as he serves tables. Philip is an evangelist. Signs and wonders will happen through his ministry. In Acts chapter 8, Philip will be given the opportunity to be a key figure in the evangelization of Samaria and then will evangelize an Ethiopian. In Acts chapter 6, God is preparing Philip for what is next as he serves tables. Submission is an early leadership lesson. As we submit, we learn to depend on God where we are. God can't use us if we don't depend on him. As we submit, we also learn that the mission isn't about us. It's about God and his kingdom. We get to be co-workers with him. We learn that our heart is also God's mission field. He wants to transform our hearts. Quite often, early in our spiritual journey, God asks us to submit to the leadership we don't fully agree with. It tests our faith in God. Is he truly sovereign over our individual lives and over our spiritual families? Can we trust him with our future? If we refuse to learn the lesson, we will keep on bumping up against it for the rest of our lives. We'll suffer a lot of pain. Why? Because God wants us to learn to depend on him and grow up. In Acts chapter 6, what is the fruit of the church family's decision? The empowerment of the seven and their submission to the task given. We'll look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In the book of Acts, we don't hear of this particular complaint again in the Jerusalem church. The church remains united. And here's an interesting detail. Who is at the front of the Christian movement as we read through the book of Acts? The Hellenists. The apostles attend to the need of the Hellenist widows. The church family remains united. And the Hellenists become the great evangelists of the early church. And the number of disciples, according to the scripture here, multiplies greatly. So when facing dysfunction, we must see beyond the pain by acknowledging God's hand in the process. Allow me to share a personal example. When we were church planting in Brazil, our church family had gone through about seven years of continuous growth. 
Along the way, we were trying to learn as much as possible about being the spiritual family Jesus wanted us to be. We were growing in prayer, evangelizing, making disciples, forming cell groups across the city, and investing in leadership development. We were planting other churches, rescuing street children, and sending missionaries to Africa. We sincerely believed we were seeking the advance of God's kingdom in Brazil and beyond. Then, in 2001, a series of events brought me incredible pain and also brought pain, great pain, to the church family. The leadership team was betrayed by one of its members. I was accused of not believing in prayer and holding on to church leadership even though we were seeking to grow in prayer and constantly investing in young leaders and inviting them into leadership. We worked really hard to discover what was happening within the leadership team. After multiple individual and group conversations, we were unable to face our dysfunction. Those sowing the seeds of division frustrated every attempt to bring clarity. Thankfully, the elders remained united. But the church family was confused. Many new believers did not know who to believe. They found people they loved and trusted on both sides of the conversation. We prayed and prayed and prayed. It was excruciatingly painful. One leader eventually removed himself. Some members left. I remember telling God that our church family did not deserve this. We had tried so hard to live according to the scriptures. I remember telling God that I did not deserve the leadership crisis. After all, I had surrendered my life to him and was willing to serve him anywhere. I remember telling God that this crisis was not bringing him glory. From my perspective, it was all wrong. Why the pain then? Why the dysfunction? Well, selfish interests were at work. Members were, members were bringing their dysfunction into the church family. Satan was at work. He wanted to destroy the church. But most importantly, God was at work in the midst of our dysfunction. As a spiritual family, we all needed to grow up. We had much to learn about discipleship and healing ministries. We had much to learn about God's sovereignty and his ability to work in painful situations. I needed to be humbled and broken, even though I didn't want to be. I had much to learn. At the beginning of 2001, I had actually asked the Lord to take me deeper in my love for the church family. Believe me, when we live through dysfunction, we come to a new understanding of what it means to love the church family. We cannot live through the dysfunction of church family if we're not willing to go to the cross and die to ourselves. We cannot live through the dysfunction if we're not willing to own our shortcomings and sins. I had to own mine. We cannot live through dysfunction if we're not willing to forgive those who present themselves as our enemies, bless them, and love them. When we live through the dysfunction of church family, we begin to read the scriptures in a new light. We see the the life of Jesus differently. We interpret the experience of the early church differently. We see verses we have never seen, like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I hadn't seen that verse. God is sovereign always over the moment. There's always purpose in it. Now, Unfortunately, many people get stuck when they experience church family dysfunction. 
Some choose to change churches. Some decide to sit on the sidelines. It appears to be easier. But we must remember that we will all stand before Jesus. And if we have chosen to sit on the sidelines because of the pain we have experienced, what will we say to Jesus? I think the Lord will ask us, why did you not forgive? Did I not forgive you? Did I call you to myself so you could sit in bitterness? Next week's message will address the wonderful path to forgiveness. In Acts chapter 6, the church family listened well, brought clarity by God's grace, worked together, and saw beyond the pain. Because the Hellenists and Hebrews moved beyond their dysfunction, the number of disciples continued to multiply. Even the priests, the group most resistant to Jesus, joined in great numbers. Why? I think the priests saw God's compassion evident in the church family. They came to the conclusion that Jesus was sent by the Father because his followers loved one another. In our day, may we be an answer to Jesus' prayer found in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are with us in all things. Teach us, Lord, to listen well. To listen well to those who may disagree with us. Grant us an understanding of the dysfunction that we are carrying into the church family. Lord, may we ground ourselves in your word. May we be people of prayer. May we seek your direction. Thank you, Lord, that you bring clarity to our situation. Thank you that you're present by your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to shine light on our darkness, and to lead us forward. Father, may we see beyond the pain. May we see your hand at work among us. You are transforming us into the likeness of your Son. And so thank you for your gracious work among us, even in the midst of pain. By your grace, Lord, may we face the pain of relational dysfunction, whether it be in our biological families or our spiritual family. And may we remain committed to you, committed to the growth of your kingdom, committed to one another. May we love one another, truly love one another deeply, that the world might know, Father, that you sent your son Jesus for our salvation. So we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.